Hey, hey, welcome back to the Drum Mantra Podcast, episode 44. That's kind of cool, 4-4. What a time signature. I mean, talk about dominating music for most of history in a lot of cultures around the world. 4-4, the winning time signature. Patterns, permutations, time, rhythm, coordination, meter, concentration, tempo, modulation, groove. Welcome to the Drum Mantra Podcast. This is Rich Stitzel, and it's time to go deeper with your practice. So what I what I did is, you know, at some point I started realizing like I can put in these, you know, these sextuplets and make it sound essentially kind of faster than it is. Polyrhythms, polymeters, what are they? How are they related? How are they different? Let's take a look. Before I set up anything in a session, I try to find out, hey, what's the first song we're going to do? Can we go listen to it? Is there some kind of demo? And then, because I hate, I hate just like throwing up like any old cymbals and snare drum and whatever, um, building a kit and then going to listen to the song, you're like, oh, well, I wouldn't use half the stuff that's up here. The way to be successful at something is you have to be so passionate about it that time disappears. You do not care. You are just in it. You can't wait to wake up because you get to start again. When you go to sleep, you hope that you dream about it. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about passion. I, I really feel like that's a really under-emphasized part of being a drummer, is getting sad. What happens is you're moving the accents everywhere possible in a measure of 4-4, four, four, a measure of 3-4, and a measure of 5-4. You break it down, you know, sometimes you'll do threes in each hand or whatever, but it's a, it's a combination of just those two things and throwing in a single kick drum or a double kick drum, and now you have these odd phrases you that is kind of interesting though, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by time signatures and I haven't done a total deep dive into time signatures around the world and related to cultures, but um, I think it's interesting that there was a period where waltzes were very popular and I, obviously sometimes these things are based around dances and what's popular in the culture as far as a dance is concerned. Um, and then the 12-8 triplet-oriented things from, like, West Africa have a relationship to three and four. And then, of course, all the dance music in Europe and the United States is in 4-4. Four, four. And then you have things like Greek music and Balkan music and other things that are in 7-11... And then you have different subdivisions occasionally. The triplet subdivision, the eighth and sixteenth note subdivision, and we're starting to see uh, a little bit of a, a rise in the five notes per quarter note subdivision, which is not a quintuplet. Quintuplet is a polyrhythm. It infers a polyrhythm. Um, quintuplet would be something that's a five over something, and these are just fives as the actual subdivision. So I don't think I would call them quintuplets. I like to call them 20th notes. Anyway, um, it has been another six weeks at least since I did a podcast. And every time I start to think about doing a podcast, and I, I've made a list of uh, in, my, in my notes on my phone, I have podcast topics, and I have a whole big list. And basically I would, you know, if I'm, I only do a podcast if I'm inspired to talk and 
I don't know why I'm inspired to talk all of a sudden this morning, and I don't really know what I'm going to talk about, but I got in my car. I have a triple today. I have a, I have a, uh, a short, I have, I have three, three, uh, two gigs in a rehearsal. So I have a rehearsal this morning in one location, and then I have a short gig this afternoon, and then I have another gig this evening. So I am out. I left the house at 8.30, and I'll get home around 10. So uh, it's a 14-hour it's a day. Now, here's the funny thing. When I personally decided I wanted to be a musician, it was, and I'm going to be honest here, it was so I didn't have to work. <laughs> I wanted to be free in all areas of my life. I wanted to, uh, you know, work at night. And this is what I did for the first 10 years of my career was work at night, sleep in, and I'm talking sleep in, like get up at noon kind of stuff. Get in at four, sleep till noon, maybe, you know, hang out a little bit. Probably I used to teach lessons a lot too when I played, so, but I just, I just liked the freedom of like doing anything I wanted at any time, and that was a huge attractor for me with being a musician and being in a band. I never thought of, uh, I never had the mentality of being a professional musician as much as I had the mentality of being in a band. Very, very different, and I didn't even realize the difference. I kind of got hints at the difference because, as you may have heard if you listened to my podcast before, both of my parents are professional musicians mainly on the education side of things. They're both band directors. Uh, my mom plays woodwinds. My dad plays brass. My stepmom also plays uh, trumpet. My dad plays trumpet. Uh, my dad's an arranger, composer, and jazz studies professor, and um, big band director. And My mom and stepmom are both uh, concert band and jazz band directors. And my grandfather was a huge in the music education world. But... Um, so I saw that side of it, and and my dad always had a band. He always had a jobbing band, actually, and, and always, you know he also always had big bands. So I would go see the big bands play, and later I would actually sit in with them. And he, I remember him leaving on weekend nights to go play, uh, you know, corporate parties and weddings and stuff in his bands. Um, but I never really thought of it as that's what a professional musician does. I just thought I like the idea of a band. And I felt like it was different than what my family did. And I kind of had a little glimpse of feeling like I was doing things kind of the uh, sort of the shortcut way or the cheater way, I guess I would say. Um, my, my uncle was also like, he was a super, when I was a teenager, he was one of the biggest, uh, session drummers in Nashville and he was doing, you know, major label records that were, that are now classic albums that are like some of the biggest hits in country music with George Strait and Hank Williams Jr. and stuff. And, um, he toured in... You know, he, he toured with Jimmy Buffett for 15 years and was also like this 
amazing songwriter. So I always kind of felt like a little bit of the black sheep because I didn't, I didn't take practice as seriously as I should have when I was younger. I guess I was just sort of naturally a little bit um, more gifted than um, than I, I, don't, I don't know. I was able to play. I did practice. I did like to practice, and I like to think about you know music and everything, but. Again, it always had a little bit of a relation, probably because when you get into a band, you start, you hear my windshield wipers, I'm in the car again. That's where I like to do my podcast, in the car. Anyway, when you get in a band, it's a culture, you, and especially when you're young, and the band is too young to get into any, any venues to perform. Now, this is, this is back way before School of Rock, and now venues are happily accepting School of Rock concerts because they make so much money because all the parents are coming and they can do a daytime concert and, and uh, you know basically have nighttime numbers so the business model is different but back in the old days when I was in a band um, you didn't have coaches and teachers to teach you how to be in a band you got in a band with people and you started trying to figure out how to write songs and your performances you know, I'm just I'm saying your, but my this is my experience. Um, the rehearsals were basically the concerts, and there would be anywhere from five to thirty people at our rehearsals. And the rehearsals were basically a way for the other kids. I'm talking about you know thirteen to seventeen year olds to listen and hang out and party. And that was kind of how the culture of young bands was when I was starting in my young band phase back in like 1985. So that band mentality means you only play with your band and it's kind of like a gang. Like you are, I'm saying you again, but I'm, I'm talking specifically about my experience. Um, our band was a gang and bands did not support each other it was kind of like a war a little bit like you me us <laughs> our band and other bands also did this it wasn't just us so that's why i'm saying you but um do did we do certain things like if 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 we were op- you know eventually when we would start playing clubs if we would open our people knew that you come see our set, and then as soon as we're done, you clear the room. So there's hopefully no one for the for the headliner if you're not headlining. Things like that. Or if if there's an opening act, you do you, you do one of two things: either your crowd knows to not show up until you play, or to show up and give the opening band a hard time. That's how it was. I'm just saying. That's how it was. I don't... Now, I don't like that idea. <laughs> I, I like the idea of everyone being supportive of each other. But in those days, that's how it was. You battled for position. And the club owners knew it, too. I mean, I remember being in... And, you know, finally in the very early 90s, when I was finally old enough to play in, in, in uh, music venues... And I had, uh, I was in a very, very popular band. The club owner in this one particular venue 
the if if you could sell out a Saturday night, the next position that you would go to is Monday. And literally, the best bands that drew the most, he would put on Mondays. If they sold out a Saturday night, the next place they would go is a Monday night. And that's because he would always say, prove it to me. Prove, me, prove to me that you're the best band. Let me see you sell it out tonight. And the culture was so strong that you would just rally your people and, and go out and staple flyers on light poles and put flyers on cars and, and really just get on the ground and, and, and get out there and, and promote a show so you could prove that you were the most popular band in town because if you could sell out a Monday you were you were the king and there were a bunch of bands that could do it so I was in a very vibrant rich music scene in Fort Worth Texas and it's still that way it's still very vibrant with original music so I always had that band mentality and I would actually, like, I, in the early days, we'd play a gig. If I knew that we were playing a gig, and we didn't play many gigs in the very early days, like, in the... Uh, there was a period, you know, you'd play a gig, and then maybe two months later you might play another gig. Um, but on those, on those gig days, I would be so nervous that I would actually skip school all day. I might skip school for the week. Because I, th- I would think, I don't, need, I don't want to go to school. I don't need school. I've got a band, and my band is doing th- its thing. And I was very, that's really, really how I lived. Um, I'd be nervous. I'd be excited. And I did not, I, it would just be another excuse to not have to do some things that I don't want to do, like go to school. I, I just was never a fan of, of school. And um, so that's how that that early part of my life went and I think luckily even though I was doing the radical being in a band living with the band I mean I, I lived in a house with the whole band we called it the camel house for the band called lost camels and we lived in that house all together and it was just an insane over-the-top crazy place parties around the clock all the time. Anyway, that was nuts. Um, and I think it was lucky because, of course, here I am in the band and all these other people playing their instruments in the band. Um, but I had a little bit different perspective than anybody else that I was playing with because my family were legit music educators and and jazz performers with you know master's degrees in music and the education and the music culture in my family was very very strong and I was very aware of it and I used it as a uh, I mean I had a lot of pride in in how what my family was I kind of considered myself to be sort of music education royalty and if you look into uh, the history of my family, you would, you'll see that. I'm not going to talk about it too much right now, but uh, my grandfather was the founder of the National Association of Jazz Educators, and that that kind of launched launched us into 
hanging around all the most famous jazz musicians in the world um, would would be at these conferences and stuff. So it was a it was a it was quite a quite a time. But so I had that other experience. I had that other world where I saw what a musician was who was highly trained. I mean, you know, obviously jazz musicians in those days. I mean, I'm talking like. Like I met Tony Williams. I had a lesson with Ed Thigpen and, um, of course, Peter Erskine and um, Ed Sof. These were all the people that I kind of I knew these names when I was ten years old, and I and I also highly respected them. I really knew that they were the best musicians on the planet. And when I was playing in bands, you know, I, I was always very. Uh, I don't want to say judgmental, but I was very particular about the way that I liked uh, of the music that I listened to and the music that I allowed into my listening range. And I never really listened to the same music as anyone else that I would be playing in my bands with. Um, And that, except there were a couple key members, and they, they were, you know, my closest friends, at the time, and uh, basically, the common ground was we listened. Anyone that would listen to the Police, Frank Zappa, um, Pink Floyd, those were kind of the three common ground bands. And then, you know, the guitar player in my young bands would also be in the. To Ozzy Osbourne or Ingve Momstein or anything like that, or the keyboard player, of course, is going to be into all the keyboard bands from the 80s. But I was just like, not, not only was I not into listening to specific kinds of music when I was that age, but I felt like it was dangerous for me to listen to something that was not. Um, immediately and noticeably enriching um, and that's kind of how I and I'm gonna I'm gonna open a huge can of worms here I'm sure I'm gonna hear some messages on my social media from this but um, I listened to rush when I was in the seventh grade and I liked it I really liked it I learned how to play Tom Sawyer in the seventh grade and and I uh, listened to moving pictures a lot and uh, I guess what is it? All the world's a stage. Is that what it was? Um, and I and I continue to to have a little bit of a Rush interest. But as soon as I heard the Police, I was done with Rush, and I realized how what I, the, the difference between the two bands was just uh, Rush felt calculated, and the Police felt um, off the cuff and energetic, and you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, a, a live concert from Rush is going to be exactly like the record. And a live concert from the police is not going to be like the record at all. The tempos are going to be faster. Sting might be singing different lyrics. Stuart Copeland is improvising his drum things. So I just really became very interested in that culture of pop music where there's improvisation happening. Because I think it made me feel like it was the closest thing to jazz without being jazz and I did not dislike jazz at all I loved jazz I mean secretly on my own 
when I wasn't hanging out with everybody, the bands I was listening to were Weather Report, Charlie Parker, and Miles Davis, and Chick Corea, um, Count Basie. I mean, those are the those were my teenage loves. I mean, I loved that music, but I knew that the people that I was playing with, first of all, had no relationship to that music because their parents didn't listen to it and they probably wouldn't enjoy it because it you know it takes a it takes a highly trained ear to really appreciate jazz if you're if you're in if you're in the pop world especially in the pop world in the 80s their uh jazz is jazz is a stretch for the ears um and i also knew that the players that i played with would would probably never really be able to play jazz. This is young. This is the young me, remember. <coughs> Excuse me. So I kept that kind of on the down low on my own listening time and um, would sort of find common ground with those bands like I mentioned, Zappa, The Police. Um, so that's that band mentality, and that was my whole life in in Texas now I did have the opportunity even though I was playing in the band mentality and I had that band mentality um, I would get called for recording sessions occasionally I did know how to read music I did I always had a teacher um, and I knew I knew stuff about about drums so I was I was taking things seriously on my own terms. Like, I did not want to major in music. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I just wanted to be in a band, and I wanted to, you know, study with the great drummers in my area who, who man, those, those, those people definitely are responsible for me knowing how to play. Um, uh, Rick Rogers... In Fort Worth was my first drum teacher. Joel Fulgham was actually my first drum teacher. He was in the one o'clock, and I was six. I took about four months of lessons with him. But then um, Rick Rogers was my drum teacher. He was an awesome drum teacher. Taught me about Steve Gadd when I was twelve, or I was probably thirteen actually. And um, then I studied a little bit with Randy Drake who was also in the one o'clock around that time, around 84, 85, I think. And I studied with Preston Thomas, who was the principal of the Fort Worth Symphony. And I studied with uh, Rich McDonald, who was, he's so good. He's one of my favorite, favorite drummers and one of my favorite teachers of all time, Rich McDonald. He's now in University of, he was at University of Texas Arlington and also University of North Texas and now he's somewhere in Minnesota, I want to say. Anyway, Rich McDonald, he's awesome. And then um, my, my most recent teachers in Texas would have been in the early 90s. I studied with Mike Drake for several years and he is also just a stellar player and human. And then um, I kind of ended my my studies at North Texas with Ed Sof. I think that's about the the run of my things. And I was I was with Sof for uh, one year. 
Um, anyway, yeah, so moving to Chicago, which is where I am now, and I've been here for almost 18 years, the musician mentality came into my world. The band mentality was no longer a paradigm that would work for me. Because when you move to a new city and you have a young baby <laughs> and you have a family, the, uh, the luxury of finding people to start a band and, and finding people who you can immediately kind of match and merge with culturally in a city you've never been to. I've never even, I've only been to Chicago once before I moved here and I didn't do anything with music when I was here. So I began to realize very quickly that it was going to be different. I was not going to be, you know, putting an original band together and staying out at all hours of the night trying to promote the band and playing gigs. And the lifestyle had to change, and it had to change in a city that I didn't know anyone. Um, but it took me a little while to shift my thinking because I was I, I, I didn't understand how am I going to be a musician? What is this going to look like if I'm not in a band? If uh, you know who are these people? Because if you're a lot of times if you're if you're not in a band, if you're just a hired professional musician, most of the things that you do are behind closed doors. You're either doing private private work. Um, for you know corporate events and stuff, or you're doing recording sessions, and it's like how do you find these people if you don't already know them and you're new and all that? So um, luckily, this city and now that I know in hindsight, the 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 top players in town are those people that do what I just said. They are the ones that are doing all the high level work that requires a lot of attention, you know, the, the, the Broadway, the Chicago Broadway shows, um, and then what's called jobbing, which is super high level, high intensity corporate work, um, private event work, and then recording sessions. All of those musicians, when they're not doing that, they're doing project bands. And these project bands are original groups that aren't necessarily so concerned with building a culture of followers besides you know the handful of people that show up and the musicians that show up a lot of them, a lot of the great musicians in town the their original projects mainly attract the other musicians in town it's high level composition uh, and performance and it's cool it's original and um, you know it's a different world sometimes they're singers sometimes not but um all of those people grew up with that mentality because in this city, that's just how things work. You do your original projects, you do the, you do all the high-level private function stuff and sessions to afford to do the other things in your free time. That's how this city works. So as soon as I started to get a get a grasp of that, I was able to shift my my mental game into becoming a very highly skilled 
gun for hire, I guess, is basically how it works here. Um, of course, there's networking, and it didn't happen overnight, but I was able to sort of infiltrate the scene by becoming friends with, you know, a lot of people in town. I mean, I know everyone now. Well, I, I, I don't know everyone. Actually, I meet new people every single day who are killer. And I'm like, how did I not even know who you are? It's a big city. I mean, when you have four million people, you're not gonna you're not gonna know everybody. But I know a large group of people who I work with all the time who are my people. And we all share the mentality of what I would just call professional musician, where you are prepared to, to do anything you get hired for and you are able to read, you're able to play any style, you're able to, you've, you've got enough gear where you can have, like I, like I have drum sets on trailers and with bands and I have drum sets on different stages that just stay there. And of course my studio's full of drums and I've got a kit in my car right now. So, you know, you have to have, the, you have, to have a lot of gear because you, there's a chance that you may have to have gear set up all over town so you can then go and do the do the gigs but um, the mentality has shifted I'm glad I had that first part because a lot of the people that I work with here never experienced the band mentality full on so it's it's different when you're when you have the band mentality you don't go to rehearsal with your band and say I need I need $75 to rehearse and I need you know, $300 to perform, you're not going to say that to your band. They would think you're crazy. Everything is even. Like if there's four members in the band, any money that's made, you split five ways. Each person gets one-fifth, and one-fifth goes to the band fund. I mean, that was just kind of common practice with with my bands. Um, in Chicago, it's different. If you're getting hired from a like a singer-songwriter to do a show, you are getting paid to do a, a rehearsal, and you are getting paid to play the gig, regardless of anyone if if anyone's in the audience or not. And that's that's how things differ here. And it's tough. It's tricky because there's some there's something magical about being in a in a situation where everyone is in it together, all for one, and that band mentality just just feels a different way than it does when you're on stage with your good friends who are all stellar musicians playing music once for a, an artist and then the next night you're playing music again once for another artist and the music is being performed very well at a very high level by people that you like and, and know really well. I mean, all the players I play with, I play with all the time. In fact, back to where I was talking about in the beginning of this, I have three things today. I have a rehearsal and two gigs. Uh, the rehearsal in the first gig is with Paul Mutzabaugh, who I'm, I'm literally with all the time. I mean, I'll probably see him five times this week. And then the sec my second and third gig today are with Chris Clementi, whom also... I am with all the time. I mean, we play we play hundreds of gigs a year together, and that 
that core trio works all the time together on all kinds of different things. So we're very good friends. Everyone can play anything. Everyone can read. I'm probably the weakest reader of the bunch. But um, we can go in and make anybody sound really good. And even though we're great friends and we, like this morning, we'll, we'll either we'll do this rehearsal or the gig and we'll all go have brunch and we'll hang out. We know each other very well. It just is still not... It's still not a band. It still does not feel like... We don't share the band mentality because we've never actually done the band. I mean, we've we've literally played thousands of gigs together. And it's crazy. I mean, we've logged more hours in, than I've logged with anybody because I've been playing with these guys for 16 years as professional musicians, not as a band. It's very interesting to have the two different ways to look at it. So I want, I, I, I'm almost, I'm going to have to check my directions here, but I'm, um, I want to encourage you to just sort of consider the, what I'm talking about and see where you're at on, on thinking about what your experience is in music. Are you, are you new? Are you a student? Are you just starting are you excited to get get in your first band, or are you are you a veteran? Have you been in the music scene? Have you only been a musician? Have you also been a, in a band? Um, I would love to know and hear from you what your experience has been. And if I don't hear from you, not that I have to hear from you, but I just want you to think about how there are different perspectives of experience in playing your instrument. And it has a lot to do with culture and community, I think, is is what it comes down to. I mean, being a professional musician with other professional musicians that you are with around the clock every day for years is different than being with musicians that you're in a band with and it's all for one, one for all. Now, you know, I don't want to say numbers, but the, the 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 musicians that I work with in Chicago have have brought in a lot of money, and the bands I've worked in have been bands that have been a, been successful enough to like buy you know buy a house, buy cars, and stuff. But a different, but it's different. You never know what you're going to make. It's all based on the club. It's based on how well you promoted the show and how the band pulled people in and everyone's on the same page with that bringing people in and it's not you're not bringing people in because you you want to make the money you're bringing people in because you're trying to create a bigger culture for the music that you wrote when you're a professional musician you're not concerned with who's at the door because that's not that's not your responsibility your responsibility is to play the person's music as well as you can and make them sound really good and then when you're done you get paid regardless of who's in the audience like I said so it's com- completely different and I didn't even realize that until I moved the only way to understand perspective is to either have the experience or or hear someone talk about it and I was never someone who 
learned from listening to others. I wanted to experience it. And I think everyone should experience what it is that they... I, want, I think everyone should experience their life. I don't, I don't think everyone should read about how to live life and listen to people on how to live life and then just trust that. You got to get in it and get, I mean, this is life. Do it. You've got to have the guts and, and the, the, uh, the sense of freedom enough to just do, do what you want to do. And that's where your life experience comes from. And I think that's so important. Um, yeah, I just, I just can't say that enough. Just live it, live it, do it. Because then you get perspective and then you get to speak to others with your wisdom and feel like you're making a difference. But I guarantee you, they're the people you're talking to from, from your position of wisdom. They hopefully will also just want to live their own life and experience it. And it's great for them to hear you say your experiences, just like I like to share my experiences with you, but ultimately, you know, use that as a reference, but live the way that you want to live and go out and have some awesome experiences and learn from them. And don't just blindly go through it. Actually pay attention to what's happening. I mean, if you're, if you're an older person, you're able to have an experience and reflect on it. You know, when you're young, you're just in the moment and you're just living hardcore in the moment and that is that's a beautiful thing but once you get a little older and you start to get some perspective every experience can give you a lot of reflection and when you're able to reflect you're able to really kind of gather a philosophy for yourself and a philosophy that if if needed you're able to impart wisdom to someone who is uh, interested in hearing what your experiences are so there you have it I'm almost to my gig. I can't believe I did a podcast. Wow. That has nothing to do with any of the subjects that I wrote down. But that was fun. I enjoyed talking. I guess it was the uh, I guess the vitamins I took this morning just like really got me pumped up or something. Uh, it's raining. It's almost spring. It's, that could have a lot to do with the two. Man, surviving every winter in Chicago is so intense. So hardcore. But... I think we're I think we're in the clear. It's raining. It's in the 40s. Little things are starting to barely poke out of the ground. So we are we are entering a season of kindness <laughs> where the weather is like you know friendly to us, which I love. Um, well, I didn't talk about a lot of things that I thought I wanted to talk about, like practicing and uh, and transcribing and all these things that I've been doing lately composing so maybe uh, I'll be inspired to do another podcast sooner than later because there's so many things I, I, I definitely want to talk to everybody about okay well I'm going to sign off I hope you all have a great day and um, please spread the word about this podcast oh yeah the podcast was just named the top 11 podcasts for listening, learning music theory on the go, um, I can't remember, I think it was from a, a website called Flypaper or Superfly or something, I don't, I don't remember, and I don't remember the person who wrote the article, but uh, anyway, it's a, a, some composer in, 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 in England, 
mentioned the Drum Mantra podcast as one of the top 11 music theory podcasts to listen to. So that is awesome, and I'm very grateful for the accolades and the uh, and the and the mention there. Um, so please spread the word about this podcast and. If you haven't done a review yet, I'd love for you to, to review it. If you get value from it, uh, leave me a rating. Uh, unless you want, unless your rating, if your rating's not five stars, maybe just don't do anything. <laughs> but if it's five stars, I'd love to have it. No, you can do what you want. But uh, I really appreciate your attention. Um, yeah, there's so many things going on. I just I, I, I want to make sure that I say everything. I've got a whole. I've got a big lesson thing going on on YouTube right now. You can join in. My YouTube channel has a. It's starting. I'm starting to put a ton of lessons on over there. So please go to my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/RichStitzel, and uh, subscribe. And you will get all kinds of really good, strong, solid, interesting, unique lessons to work your coordination. What else? The podcast is... Oh, yeah, I've got a Patreon page now. Um, so, you know, if you're a millionaire listening to this podcast and just want to pour your support into the drum mantra, into what I'm doing, please, by all means, go to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash richstitzel. There's all kinds of levels, and it starts on, you know, a level where you get mentioned on my podcast or... And it goes all the way up to a level where you get, um, you know, six hours of my time uh, a week or a month. I can't remember where we do, we can do anything, private lessons or consulting for your business or anything like that. So there's a widespread um, of, of rewards over on Patreon and the Patreon page really goes to um, helping support all the things, all these little fires that I started. <laughs> um, the, ex- the expenses of, of website hosting and, and storage for videos and all, all that stuff. So you can read about that on my Patreon page if you're interested. Um, of course, Instagram, Facebook, those are the main places that I'm going to be posting just things, but um, yeah, I guess that's about it, enjoy your day, take care, I hope to talk to you soon, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Drum Mantra Podcast, your time and attention is much appreciated. I would love it if you went to the iTunes store and left a rating, and please share this with anybody that you think would like to go deeper with their practice. Take care.